All right, today we have a special New Year message, which I'm going to entitle Operation Epsilon. Operation Epsilon, a new eschatological perspective. And this will blend easily into our communion service today. This is a special time of the Eucharist, a time to share in the celebration of our participation with Jesus Christ in his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and in his future. We share his history. And we welcome everyone here, even as he died for all, all are welcome to participate in this communion service with us today. And so this will go a segue into the communion service. Our faithful and competent ushers will lead you to the elements. And so, again, this will go right into that service. I want to start off by doing what is called an excursus, E-X-C-U-R-S-U-S, which in English would be an excursion, a digression. But digressions are the most important things we can engage in when we're dealing with certain topics. And this is called eschatology and history. I always do this in my notes, eschatology, which begins with the letter Epsilon. And this is welcome to Operation Epsilon 2019. And then I do this for history. And we're going to do a distinction with the sword of the word between eschatological and historical reality. And this is more important than we've ever known before at this time in history. This is the way that we deal with adversity. This is how we function in the agona, the arena of contention, which heightens more and more until the coming of our Savior Jesus Christ in the spiritual realm. And so Operation Epsilon is our battle cry for 2019. What is required is a differentiation of consciousness, and that's a fancy way of saying what the Word of God does. It's alive and it's powerful, and it pierces to the penetration of soul and spirit, distinguishing, it distinguishes certain things, history from eschatology. Usually eschatology is viewed as simply a view of end-time events, but really it's a perspective that is essential for all of us to have. So I refer once again to start with to a significantly insightful statement made by Abraham Heschel, this time with an emphasis not on course of living, the course of living that we mentioned before, but on history, the emphasis he makes on history, which he says, for all its relevance is not sufficient of itself. History for all of its relevance is not sufficient of itself. Just think of that phrase because it's going to figure into our excursus, our discursion, our excursion here. So he says, if Judaism had relied exclusively on the human resources for the good. Now, he is a Hebrew scholar and not a Christian. He is speaking about the philosophy of Judaism in his book called God in Search of Man. And so from his viewpoint, Consider what he thinks of Messiah. If Judaism had relied exclusively on the human resources for the good, on man's ability to fulfill what God demands, on man's power to achieve redemption, why did it insist upon the promise of a messianic redemption? Indeed, 
Messianism implies that any course of living, even supreme human efforts, must fail in redeeming the world. We've studied in Romans that even supreme human efforts fail in justifying anyone in the eyes of God also. He then closes by saying, it implies that history, for all its relevance, is not sufficient of itself. I want to play on that. History is not sufficient of itself for us to understand what we call the Christ event, the event of the incarnation, the life that Jesus lived in the days of his flesh in perfect obedience to the Father's saving will. The obedience that he executed was to the extent of death by crucifixion, followed by burial, which sealed that death as a historical reality, and then resurrection on the third day. What is needed then is not history of itself, but a theology with a particularly eschatological point of view. The eschatological point of view perceives a horizon that is above, beneath, and beyond the mere course of what is called human events. It perceives a kind of history in the triune God, a history in God. This history also has its events and its incidents. And these events and incidents often occur within the history that is observable to the human eye. We call it human history. Our greatest example as believers in Christ of an historical event is the crucifixion in around A.D. 30, as we measure years, of a Jewish prophet named Jesus of Nazareth. Outside the gates of Jerusalem, by order of Pontius Pilate, a proconsul of Rome, but also by the insistence of the religio-political leadership in Jerusalem, along with a mob of plaintiffs, the human event, and it is that, or what we might call the Calvary incident, is perceived by the viewpoint of the objective historian, believer or not believer, as an episode in the coincident history of Rome and Israel. The coincident history of Rome and Israel. Some historians may accept the narrative of the gospel writers and preachers as accurate. More and more are, especially as it's rooted in eyewitness accounts. They will accept the narrative of the gospel writers and the preachers of the New Testament that this same Jesus was buried and that he arose from the dead. They will at least report that initial believers believed it and multiple millions still believe that he was raised from the dead. They will report that such a thing was believed by a number of contemporaries of Jesus 
and that these events actually led to the formation of what they might call a world religion called Christianity that survives and even thrives until today, though it's certainly beset and besieged in this world. The eschatological viewpoint, marked by the epsilon of the Greek alphabet, a step beyond delta. The eschatological viewpoint, which can only come about through an illumination by the Spirit of God called the eternal spirit in Hebrews 9.14 views the incident of the crucifixion of this Jewish prophet as the event in which God in Christ reconciled the world to himself, not counting the world's trespasses against them. History isn't sufficient in itself to report that fact. Eschatology, the eschatological viewpoint, is sufficient. 2 Corinthians 5.19, the world that was so reconciled means the conglomerate in all of humanity, in all of its times. That's where this word diachronic comes from, dia, which means through, and then chronic, which means time. Diachronic means throughout history, throughout all of history, diachronic which means the redemption, the reconciliation of the world was diachronically applied throughout all of history, all of humanity in all of its epochs, times, and sequences, and generations, past, present, and future to the cross, diachronic. When Jesus Christ returns, his glory will be diachronically manifested throughout all of history and all Humanity be raised from the dead. So then, this is history is insufficient in itself to describe this event or to even hope for it. The world is the conglomerate of all humanity in all of its times, including Israel, including Israel in its time of apostasy, including all of the idolatrous or pagan nations which were ruled by principalities and powers called the Elohim, a small e. To the eschatological viewpoint, that which is finally determined to be reality, the final determined reality, is not the sinful history of humankind, but the act of the triune God gathering up all the sinfulness of history in the Lamb, in the Lamb of God, in order to take it away. History is an observable and reportable sequence of human events. That might be a good definition. Uh, history, which is insufficient in itself to give us a view of what God wishes us to see. History is an observable and reportable sequence of human events, but it's not shown to be a lie. It is not shown to be a lie. There is a true history. There is a revised history that people in their prejudices and biases conform to their own 
resentment, their own bitterness, their own personal biases. There is a revised history, but there is a true history. And that true history that has occurred and goes on occurring objectively is not a lie or an illusion in the eschatological viewpoint. It is rather sublated or subsumed into a higher integration of history that is divine. What happened when men judged Jesus of Nazareth and put him to death by the unthinkably brutal means of Roman execution called crucifixion is sublated. It's a fancy word. It means subsumed or taken up into the higher history of what happened invisibly between the eternal father, the eternal son, and the eternal spirit. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself to God without spot as a lamb, purify your conscience from dead works to serve as priests, the living God. So again, to that eschatological viewpoint, noted by the E of Epsilon, that which is finally determined to be reality is not the sinful history of humankind, but the act of the triune God in putting away sin. History, as an observable and reportable sequence of human events, is not shown to be a lie when you take on the eschatological viewpoint but it's rather sublated or subsumed, taken up into a higher integration of history that is divine. I repeat, what happened when men judged Jesus of Nazareth and put him to death by the cross. That event is sublated into the higher history of what happened invisibly in that event between the eternal father, the eternal son and the eternal spirit in the event in which Jesus endured the cross. Because this infinitely higher history occurred, this infinitely higher history occurred, the height of God's love followed by the resurrection of the same crucified Jesus from the dead. That which occurred in divine history takes precedence over, triumphs over that which happened in the course of merely human events as a result of human decisions. Human decisions, the human decision to put Jesus Christ to death was triumphed over by the divine decision to give salvation to all of humankind. We must not say that these observable and reportable events did not happen. And this is all playing into communion because we're not doing the traditional remembrance of the historical events of Jesus' death and resurrection. We are seeing in those events the hope of a universal transfiguration of all created reality over all time. 
And we are celebrating the hope that is contained in those events with an eschatological viewpoint. That's how to have communion. So we don't say that these observable and reportable events did not happen, nor we should insist that they did, of course. Nor should we say that there was no accountability on the part of human beings for these acts. But from an eschatological perspective, we must say that what God did in Christ forever triumphed over that which men did to Christ. What God did in Christ forever triumphs over that which men did to Christ. In fact, God took what men did to Christ, even what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.8, the rulers of this cosmos, angelic and human, when they crucified the Lord of glory, God took what men did to Christ, even what the rulers of this age did by crucifying the Lord of glory, And he used it to fulfill his universally salvific or saving purpose for all created beings. This is the meaning of 1 Peter 3.18, that Christ, the righteous one, as he's called there, on the one hand was put to death by the flesh. That is, by human beings under the control of that suprahuman power called the impulsive desire of the flesh, a religious desire in that case. Christ, the righteous one, on the one hand was put to death by the flesh, but who on the other hand was made alive by the spirit, the eternal spirit who raised him from the dead, who lives within you. And will also revive your mortal members in the resurrection. Historical fact recognizes that human beings, under the control of the adversary called the flesh, with the capital F as we're learning in Romans 8, put Jesus to death. Peter was pretty blunt about it when he spoke to his own contemporaries. He said, you've murdered the source and the prince of life. But there is a real sense in which all of humanity was complicit with that. History recognizes that human beings put Jesus to death. Eschatology recognizes that it was ultimately God who handed over his son. God did not spare his son, but handed him over freely in behalf of us all, is the heart of Romans 8.32. Eschatology isn't just the expectation of future historical events. It's a viewpoint 
that presents something to our eyes that history is insufficient to present. The eyes of your heart being enlightened. Have you heard that phrase before? Ephesians 1.18. It was God who handed over his son to put away sin by the offering of himself in Hebrews 9.26. It was God who raised up this same crucified Jesus. From the dead into a life that conquered death. With a view to the justification in life that God intended for everyone without exception. Romans 425 Romans 518. And the spirit resurrected Jesus from the dead. Romans 1 4 Romans 8 11 out of the death that reigned from Adam till Christ over all humankind. He was raised into the life that conquered death, a life that triumphs over death. I've said all this with the intention of application to Romans, the epistle. We've introduced this really on this past Wednesday in Romans 11 with Elijah's plea. His lawsuit against Israel. They killed your prophets. They tore down your altars. I alone am left. And God intimated to him the 7,000, which isn't a literal number, but the intention of God to save all of Israel, as Romans eleven twenty six says, in the context of saving all the nations, in the context of saving all humanity, within the horizon of diachronically transforming and transfiguring all of created reality in all of its times. So then, I've said all this to apply to Romans, the epistle, from a religio-historical perspective. That's what Romans 118 to 32 is. It's a religio-historical perspective that can be found in some of the Jewish authors contemporary with Paul, especially Wisdom of Solomon. A religio-political, religio-political viewpoint. From the religio-historical perspective, we might say, as noted in Romans 118 to 32, And by the history of Israel recounted throughout the scriptures, sadly cataloged by Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 about Israel katasarka, Israel katasarka. Consider Israel after the flesh. Making sacrifices to demons in the wilderness. Consider all these events in history, the malbehavior, of Israel. So the history of Israel recounted in the scriptures and in history books too, and of the Gentiles and the Jews, we find out that Gentiles and Jews both behave badly in history. Those who judge the one, the other, Paul says, but you're also without excuse if you judge another because you've done the same thing. 
Romans 2 and following. But here's the point. From a religio-historical perspective, Gentiles and Jews both behave badly throughout history. But from the eschatological viewpoint, God consigned both segments of humanity into one group imprisoned in disobedience that he might have mercy on all. You don't get that from history. That's an eschatological perspective. Welcome to Operation Epsilon. You're in, baby, and there's no turning back. Did you see it? You can't turn back now. There's no turning back. You can't go back through that Red Sea that we've passed through. It's closed again behind you. Once you have that viewpoint, you can never see the same way again. And you know what you're destined to do with this new perspective? Love all humankind. In fact, you might even love all creation because love hopes all things. And that's the last note I'm going to strike before we go to the communion. But listen. What God did eschatologically then was to consign both Jews and Gentiles to the disobedience of unbelief. In order to have mercy on them all, that's on us all, through the faithful death of his son, the Messiah, who is also the savior of the world. Divine Mission 1, God sent his son into the world so that the world would be saved through him. And that's the disobedience of unbelief. And God intends to call all the nations, Israel included, to the obedience of faith, which is an obedience that consists of willing allegiance to Jesus Christ which all, everything that has breath will pledge that allegiance. Consequently, then, at the culmination of what we might call history, in an eschatological event, still future to us, all will be brought to the obedience of faith at the apocalyptic appearance of Yahweh's salvation. Yahweh's salvation is Yehoshua personified in Jesus the person of Jesus who is called the eschatos, eschatos, Adam, the last Adam, the final Adam. The final Adam is the final word, not the first Adam, not the first ontology of the first man, not the first destiny represented by the first man, but eschatos, Adam, the last Adam is the last word. I am the first and the last, he said. The telos, the completion. So at this eschatological event, which we look forward to when he comes, that's communion. Remember my death, not just as a historical fact, but as an eschatological, saving, universal reality, followed by resurrection. All will be brought to the obedience of faith when Jesus appears. The eschatos Adam. God's spirit will be poured out on all flesh in Joel 2.28. Every tongue, E-V-E-R-Y, every 
tongue will sing praise to Yahweh as Yeshua, Philippians 2.11, Romans 14.11, Isaiah 45.23. Everything that has breath, everything that has breath, will praise him. Last verse of the Psalms, 150, verse 6. All volitional beings, human and angelic, will happily and freely pledge allegiance to him. And by then, the kingdom of God will have come. Matthew 6.10, in all its power, all its glory, and God will be all in all. So here's our shift and segue to communion. All of this applies very much to our communion service today. In the communion service, to use Richard Bauckham's take on Moltmann's view, Jürgen Moltmann pioneered the eschatological view like no other theologian in the past century. Moltmann's take on this is this. The church recalls past history not for the sake of backward-looking traditionalism, but for the sake of the unfulfilled promise contained in the past. This as yet unfulfilled promise, not me speaking, contained in the death of Jesus, followed by the resurrection of this same crucified Jesus. That unfulfilled promise will be fulfilled when this same Jesus comes from the heaven that he was seen going to in Acts 1.11. Why do you stand gawking up into the heavens, the angels said to the disciples. This Jesus will come in the same way that you've seen him go. And it's referred to again in Acts chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. Heaven must retain him for the present until the times plural, chronoi, of refreshment come from the presence of the Lord, presence of Christ immediately on earth. And the kairoi, the seasons of the restoration of all things. Why plural times? Why plural seasons? Because the restoration of all things that will occur when Christ appears diachronically reaches all the way back to the beginning of history and takes up all times, all epics, all seasons, all historical sequence, all the beings that lived in those historical sequences up into a transfigured beatification in the presence of God. It's not just all creation that's transformed by its union with God. God himself goes through a similar kind of transformation, well, a different kind, by his redemptive union with creation. God, in that sense, will be transformed because now that Jesus became flesh and united himself with all created reality through death, burial, and resurrection, now God is united with redeemed created reality. So God is all in all. God will be all in all. So the as yet unfulfilled promise to use 
Bauckham's take on Moltmann's words, that unfulfilled promise contained in the death of Jesus, followed by the resurrection of this same Jesus, will be fulfilled when this same crucified, risen Jesus appears, comes from the heaven that he went to and was seen going to by gawking disciples. And who wouldn't? That promise yet to be fulfilled is the glorious manifestation, that is, demonstration of it for all eyes to see, of the new creation of all reality, which the enthroned God pronounces as done. Revelation 21, 5 and 6, the enthroned God speaks not from the inadequacy of history, but from the divine viewpoint that sees all things wrapped up eschatologically. Behold, I'm making all things new. It is done. It is done. When was it done by the eternal God? When Jesus Christ uttered a similar word, a synonym, to telestai. In John 19.30, Christ the builder. To telestai relates to the Greek, the Hebrew word asa, the last word in Psalm 22.31. Made or created. It is done. It is made. It is created. The new creation of all reality is done in the eternal God at the cross of Christ. What's unfulfilled is its manifestation diachronically throughout all of history. At the appearing of Jesus Christ. All of this is simply just introducing you to this new promised land that we're entering. I don't expect you to get that whole perspective yet. We won't until his coming. So remember my death, which presupposes his crucifixion and requires his resurrection until I come. Because the unfulfilled promise in his death and resurrection will be fulfilled when he comes. As far as we see, and even from the historical perspective. From his cross throne, Jesus spoke the word to Telestai. James Murdoch's English translation of the Syriac Peshitta the Aramaic of John 19.30 put it this way. And when Jesus had received the vinegar, he said, Lo, L-O, done. Look, done. And he bowed his head and yielded up his spirit. Even divine reality is transformed by its eschatological union with created reality in Jesus Christ, in him bodily, all that is deity is found in him bodily. In him bodily is all creation embodied. So God will be all in all when he, the son, having ruled over all things, presents himself and in himself all created reality in all of its times to the father, because then God will be all in all. That verse reaches further than any other verse in the Bible. That's 1 Corinthians 15, 28. But you've got to start with around verse 
12. The Hebrew Asa. The Hebrew is Asa in Psalm 22:31. The Hebrew translation in Psalm 22:32, like the Greek word poieo, P-O-I-E-O, the Greek word poieo means to be created or done or finished or made. And in Psalm 22:31, which is 22:32 in both the Hebrew and the Aramaic. We have what is known as a cal preterite form of the verb, which indicates absolutely and fully past time. Done. The Aramaic verb has a similar meaning of to make or to create. So when Jesus said, mission accomplished, divine mission one accomplished, he was saying it is made. The new, creality, the new creation of all reality is a done deal in the history of the eternal God, yet to be manifested in the insufficient history, observable history of men's eyes. The generations following Jesus Christ's death, Psalm twenty-two thirty-one says, will proclaim that God has done it. The act of God in Christ has done his righteousness. His righteousness is what he has done. His rectification of all reality, which is for us still a hope. We, through the Spirit, wait for the hope of the rectification of all reality. Righteousness, the hope of righteousness, is the expectation where all of created reality is made new. Even to have history bear witness to it. Even history bears witness, will bear witness to it. So the creative and redemptive act of God in Christ at Calvary. Few people see the act of God in Christ at Calvary as being as creative as it is redemptive. Because God there created righteousness for those who lack it and created justice for those who lack it. In all of human history. The creative redemptive act of God in Christ has made all things new. That's why from the throne. Jesus uttered it and his throne was the cross. The Septuagint translation of Psalm 22 31 which is 32 in the Septuagint has. Ipoiesin. Poieo. The Hebrew has again I'll just do it phonetically. A. That's Greek. I don't do Hebrew. This is a Hebrew. A. S. A. H. Asa. That's how it's written in my phonetic version of the biblical Hebrew. Asa. In the historical perspective, this is yet an unfulfilled promise. It's still, we might say, contained in the historical event of Jesus' death and resurrection. Contained. But it has already started to overflow a bit because you were raised together with him. You were crucified with him and raised together with him. The fact that you have this viewpoint refers to the fact that it's not all contained in that event. That promise, which is still unfulfilled for our eyes to see, 
and the world to see. Contained in the past event of Jesus' death, which was followed by his resurrection from the dead. In the same way, we could say that the resurrection of Jesus from the dead guarantees the resurrection of all the dead diachronically throughout time. And in one sense, the resurrection of all the dead actually occurred in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. If this were not true, then Paul would have been deluded to say to the saints in Rome and to us today, our old man was crucified together with Christ. Romans 6, 6. He would have also been crazy to say to the saints in Colossae, you died. Well, historically, that's not true. Eschatologically, which is beyond the insufficiency of history, it is true. And it is related to the historical event of Jesus dying. Paul would have been crazy to suggest that. You died. But he also would have been nuts to suggest you were also raised up along with Christ in Colossians 2.12 and 3.1. So the church, what is the church anyways? What is the church? We call it the church. Some denominations claim that as only their title. History has revealed that that's not quite a justified name. God is bringing down. He is demolishing utterly the arrogance of men who assume that they can call their church the church to the exclusion of all others. The historical events of the past few years is the evidence of God dismantling such an arrogant, supercilious, human, religious notion. Take it as a warning, not as a reason to boast or gloat. Take it as a warning, not as a means of gloating. The church, it's the name we use properly for the conglomerate of people in the world in whom God has elicited faith in Jesus Christ. That church is given the possibility, however, which it hasn't really taken to itself often. That church is given the possibility of an eschatological perspective, which grants them an unqualified assurance of things hoped for. In Hebrews 11.1. 1. The sum of the things hoped for is not a rescue of a few million people called the rapture. That is a demeaning of hope and a degradation of hope and a false doctrine. The sum total of the hoped for things is the manifestation of the new creation of all reality, which will occur across all of time when the seasons of refreshment come from the presence of the Lord, even when he sends Jesus, the Messiah, who was appointed for you from heaven, which heaven must retain until the times of the universal restoration called apokatastasios panton, otherwise known as apokatastasis. 
Pantone means E-V-E-R-Y-T-H-I-N-G and everybody. If you don't believe me, just read Psalm 150 and the last, read the last verse in the Psalms on your own for your little devotional tonight. See what God does with that. Why is that a hope? Because all of created reality throughout all of its chiroi, chiroi is the word, K-A-I-R-O-I, plural, and then chronoi, times, plural. Why times and why seasons? Because he is revealing that the apocatastasis will cut through all of past history as well as all of what is future to us of history. This is the love of God. I'll have to do more of an exegesis of that because it hasn't really been done justice to yet. Tetelestai. When Jesus uttered that, we know that everything has already been been restored in the history of the eternal God. In the Christ event, the Calvary incident, when and where God's history intersected with human history or the history of created reality. So as we move to communion now, tetelestai is the perfect passive indicative form of the verb teleo and adds the important nuance here of completion. This agrees with another verb that we've rarely considered, gegonon, which is G-E, I'm just doing the English transliteration, G-E-G-O-N-A-N, gegonon, which is, means the perfect active indicative form of the verb ginomai or ginomai in Revelation 21.6. It is done, finished, done. Moreover, in Psalm 22.31, again, the English version, God's righteousness there. Listen carefully to this because it's the key word in Romans. The righteousness of God is apocalyptically revealed in the gospel. God's righteousness in Psalm 22.31 in your English Bibles. God's righteousness is not describing metaphysical substances. We're not talking about metaphysical substance of God's essence of righteousness. We're not even talking about theological attributes when we speak of God's righteousness. Not there. We're speaking of something that God has done in Christ. A saving act, a universally saving act, which is why Jesus Christ has universally saving significance. It was done at the cross. From the eschatological perspective, which is reality in the perspective of God, who inhabits eternity, Isaiah 57, 15, he inhabits eternity with him also or her also, who is of a crushed spirit. The new creation of all things or the glorious transformation of all reality is done in the eternal God, in the one who inhabits eternity. It was done at the cross. What is not yet done or not yet fulfilled is the manifestation of it, the fanning out of it for all creation to see and experience 
of this new creation of all reality in human history or within the actual history of created reality. The unfulfilled promise contained in the past event, to use those words of Bauckham, of the crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus from the dead is not the promise of the new creation of all things. God said that's done. The unfulfilled promise is the promise of its glorious, universal manifestation diachronically throughout all the history of created reality. This is something still future to us and to the screaming creation. All creation doesn't just groan, it screams. You think of all the suffering that's going on in this world right now as I speak And no description by medieval hellists, no description of a hell from a pseudo-doctrine of unloving false church dogma can even list and depict the suffering that's going on in this world today. The suffering that's going on in this world today is equal to any so-called depiction of hell and any snapshot of it that people could have. The all creation is not just groaning, screaming like a woman giving birth to a child. And it's a long labor. And Jesus Christ's scream from the cross was his identification with a screaming creation. Imagine then, When all creation was identified with him in his glorious resurrection. We also groan. And sometimes, yeah, it's like a primal scream in ourselves. Anticipating the liberation of all creation from its slavery to corruption. But thank God the Holy Spirit also groans within us and gives forth the birth to petitions and prayers like father, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth in history as it's already been done in your son on the cross. Now listen carefully as we move to communion. Paul makes it very clear that no one should harbor any grudges or bitterness or resentment against anyone else while they're taking communion because they might as well just drink a toast to their own demise. To their own, in other words, to their own difficulty coming up because they're judging someone. So we have to put all that stuff aside. In the eschatological viewpoint, it doesn't make sense to hate. At all. It only makes sense to love. So once you cross that line, I hate to tell you, you'll be loving. Because the Holy Spirit that makes you cross that line pours out the love of God in our hearts. So listen carefully to this last segment. I know you're paying attention for a long time, but you watched a movie this week that lasted twice as long as this. When we say that we have hope for the glorious transformation of all of humanity and all 
of created reality, we're doing what 1 Corinthians 13, 7 says. We are hoping all things. Love hopes all things. Believes all things. We could say this. Love hopes all things will be restored. Love believes all things will be gloriously transformed and has been in the eternal being of God. We're doing what love does when we hope all things. When we hope for the universal transfiguration of all creation, we're hoping all things. So what are we doing? We're doing what love does. Love hopes. Someone says, you don't love this person whom you seem to have turned your back on. You have no idea. Love hopes all things. Believes all things. Endures all things. Love never fails. Never. Love hopes all things. It hopes for all people. Systems of dogma and doctrines of men which feature a hopeless hell for a large segment of humanity and feature a future destruction of the universe cannot love all of humanity and all of creation because love hopes all things. The love of God, which the eternal spirit pours out into our hearts, hopes all things. The spirit of God produces abounding hope for the apokatastasios pantone, for the new creation of all created reality. So I say this, if I have no hope for you, I do not love you. No matter how I may say, I love everybody. Yeah, right. As we partake together then, in this Eucharist, Epsilon, U-C-H-A-R-I-S-T, we remember Jesus' death until he comes. And you never mention death without the presupposition of resurrection and the presupposition of the crucified one. The very fact that Jesus who died comes again to this world means that God has raised this same crucified Jesus from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus following his death in behalf of all causes us to look forward with an intense anticipation to the resurrection of all of the dead. The transfiguration forecasted by Jesus' own transfiguration of all humanity throughout all of history. And the liberation and beatification, that means the beautification because of seeing the face of God and reflecting it, of all created reality through all of its times by God being all in all. We celebrate this communion service then not just by commemorating Jesus death and anticipating his coming as historical 
realities. We partake in this Eucharist while cherishing the awe-inspiring implications of his death and resurrection and the astounding connotations of his future coming, at which time all of created reality will be recapitulated in him according to the mystery of God's salvific will, in which all the times will be summed up in Christ. If our ushers now, please, would take and lead. Think of the lamb leading you to springs of water. The ushers are leading you to the elements, the unfermented wine, and the gluten-free bread. And all are welcome to participate. I pretty much said all I'm going to say for communion, except now to participate in it together. The one who is our salvation said, this unleavened bread represents my sinless body, which is given for you. Partake. Our same Savior said, this cup represents the blood of a new covenant, which is shed for the remission of the sins of many. And he insisted that many equals all. Let's toast to him. It's been the custom of Tetelestai Phalanx in our advancing ranks to sing closing of the closing hymn as Jesus and his disciples did. When history was intersected by eternity, Jesus invoked the Eucharist right in the midst of the Passover. That's what we have partaken in. And we do what they did on the way out. They sang a hymn. So we're going to do that. You may be dismissed. Please dispose of the cups on your way out and wait until you hit the halls before you fellowship. Okay. Thank you.